0: welcome to beyond fear the sex crimes podcast today we are speaking with nicholas a person that served time in prison for the possession of child sexual abuse material more commonly known as child pornography Although many of our episodes are hard to listen to, we understand that hearing Nicholas speak about his actions can be particularly challenging. Please remember that you can always turn the episode off and listen later, or even listen with a friend. Despite the difficult nature of the episode's content, we believe that the account of Nicholas's life before, during, and after the offense is critical if we want to prevent acts of sexual harm in the future. Thank you for listening and continuing to journey with us beyond fear.
1: So Nicholas, thank you so much for uh, your willingness to come on the podcast uh, with us today.
2: Absolutely. Thank Thank you for having me.
1: Absolutely. You know, it's uh, it speaks a lot to your courage and your willingness to talk about a really difficult topic. And we're just really grateful um, that you're taking the time with us.
2: Well, again, it's a it's a it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad that there's a forum happening that's discussing these these topics. It's really important. I think the progress that you all are making is is fantastic and was really motivated when I first started listening
1: in. Thank you so i'm I'm wondering if you could uh start by talking a little bit about what uh led you to the point where you're where you found yourself viewing child pornography
2: okay um for me it uh, there 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 was a catalyst for me almost if I think back and you have plenty of time when you're incarcerated to go through your your entire life over and over again, and um, I found that my relationship with um, with my ex, his name was Jose, and um, that relationship was a big kind of change within me. There was a lot of things that happened. I had been working in theater at the time for quite a while, and I had landed myself a a pretty decent job traveling the world, um, getting paid to do the work that I do. I was in stage management and, and lighting design for like Broadway and Vegas style shows, and while on that uh contract I met this Dominican Puerto Rican dancer and uh while traveling the world we had that as our as our um courting ground, so to speak. Uh being able to surprise him with uh dinner in Paris and then the next uh, couple of days later he surprises me with the dinner in Amsterdam. I mean it's just it was a very powerful uh relationship start. Um At the time, I was actually dating somebody um, for almost five years. And long story short, I ended up leaving this person um, for Jose and really put all of my personal self into this relationship. I felt like he was the most attractive person I'd been with, that he was um, the best I was going to ever get. So as the prog- uh, relationship progressed, um, it started becoming toxic. And I felt like a life preserver holding on to this relationship. And he ended up leaving me. And this was after many, many times of of, of him cheating and me accepting it. Because, again, didn't want to lose the best thing I felt I had ever had. And um, after some time of him leaving... Um, he contacted me and told me that he tested positive for HIV and that I should get myself tested as well. And um, I did, and I was positive. I remember that date. It was in September 2006. And um, I was already kind of acting out, so to speak, after the breakup. I was um, ramping up on my promiscuity, um, and I was in this Side note, I was just in this time that I didn't realize it then, but I was confusing sex for love. So the more I had, the more I felt loved. And then when I wasn't getting it, I didn't feel good. And, uh, I've since come to, to see the better side of life other than that. And, uh, but when that happened, that uh, diagnosis came across. I personalized it in such a way that I, um, I would consider on the extreme dramatic side felt like this was the end of my life. This was, um, I wasn't going to, um, I wasn't going to get to do the things that I thought I was going to do. And that if I was going to go out like this, then I should go out and style and, um, kind of using the cutoff, um, felt like it was, uh, well, it's, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go out and style. And, um, I started ramping up my, or escalating my drug use um, from marijuana and occasionally some, some cocaine. I started using it more regularly when I started becoming numb to that. Then I would go up higher and start using ecstasy pills. When I was numb to that, I then progressed to uh methamphetamine and I was introduced to that during a um, sex party. And so it became a drug associated with sex for me. And, The people that I was surrounded with while using this substance made me feel like I was a movie star or porn star, for lack of a better word. And um, I fell, I became intoxicated with that feeling of being, of feeling wanted and and, um, it was very strong for me. So what progressed from there during the drug use was um, continued parties. It's with different people every time. There's just this underground, unspoken, you know where to find each other. You know the cruising apps to use. You know which bars to go to. And um, these parties, while under the influence of meth, you're up for, for quite a while Um, definitely full-nighters, but sometimes multiple-nighters. And during those times, we would talk, uh, you know, after during some sex sessions, there would be downtime where we're just hanging out, and we would talk about our first-time experiences. You know, when was the first time you had sex? When was the first time, you know, you became sexually aware? And at first, it was just benign conversation. A lot of people ask about that. Uh, When did you come out, or when did you, you know, et cetera. And, um, but it progressed more into ooh, was there anybody you grew up in high school that you were attracted to? Was there any teachers you were attracted to? and it kind of going started going down the realm of of the what ifs and the fantasies and 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 whatnot and we started um sharing you know for me, I grew up sexually promiscuous even in my teen years, so it was something that I could talk about stories that I could share. It wasn't until. Uh, someone brought a laptop and showed um, a video of uh, a teenage boy masturbating on webcam um, with him creating his own video that I started to make the connections of of what was what was being sought, what type of information was being sought what what type of you know where were they going with this. Then I started seeing that angle and um, for somebody that was low self esteem and wanting to impress those around me, um, I began telling those stories all the time and sometimes found myself in parties. If people weren't bringing it up, then I started bringing it up, started just, uh, playing this role, so to speak for me at the time. And I'm pretty sure we can dive, um, more into it because as I, as I hear the, the question, it's, it's that, you know, how did I come to this point where I found myself viewing this? Um, under the influence of methamphetamine, surrounded by people who had introduced it to me before. And at the same time, we're, we're kind of, you know, it's 2006, 2007, internet's been up for about eight years. What was really popular at the time was LimeWire. And that was a, um, multiple user, you know, sharing site. Uh, can't think of the the term right now, but, um, that was extremely popular at the time for getting music. And what was really astonishing to me, and I didn't realize this till after I was arrested, but what was really astonishing to me is that finding this material was as easy as finding a song. And because it was that easy, I felt in the realm like, Oh, I'm doing something wrong. Now, mind you, I will say that I did feel that what I was doing wrong was slightly more wrong than, than downloading songs. But at the time, I felt that it was on par with that. Like, yes, it's illegal, it's technically illegal, but nobody pursues it because it's just out there. Of course, I was wrong. It felt very easy to me, the access. At the same time, there was something deep down inside that I knew was wrong about this. But the distance, the separation between me and what I was seeing on the computer, was worlds away so the permission giving that i was giving myself or or rectifying those feelings of guilt at the end of these events was was helped because of that cushion of the anonymity of internet if that makes sense
0: yeah that does make sense with what you're telling us and we kind of wanted to shift into thinking about, you know, what led up to viewing this content into what happened when you were arrested. And so what was that like for you? What were you thinking about? Did you ever expect this to happen?
2: I absolutely did not expect to get arrested. Um prior to leaving, um so what had happened after I had kind of reached this moment in my addiction where everything around me was falling apart. Friendships jobs, uh, trust between me and my mom. Um, I was just really, uh, it was all starting to come, um, to fruition together. And I knew that there was an escape and the escape was to go back to working, um, in the industry that I had left before the entertainment industry. I knew that, that I left in good hands with them so that I could seamlessly come right back in. And for me, that was, that was a, a reset, um, for me. And I sought that with, with a vengeance, um, before and at the moment of my arrest, um, to kind of really give it due justice is to kind of explain where my mindset was at the moment that I was arrested. And, um, in order to do that, I just have to explain that tiny bit before. And, and mind you, at the time that I got arrested, my mindset was that I just dodged a bullet. I just got through a meth addiction. I just got through almost ruining relationships and friendships. Boy, I really dodged a bullet on that one. I'm never going to do it again. I'm never going to view that stuff again. I had actually, the computer had broken down on me, stopped working. And, um, it was almost like, uh, uh, a blessing, if you will, because it was just, it, it stopped the behavior for me and I felt better because it was stopped and because I couldn't access it anymore. And, um, so I threw it away and it was found in the garbage and it was refurbished and it was turned on and it was found and it was turned into the police I And and it was that fact alone that helped out in my sentencing, the fact that I had made an effort. I'd actually gone in to see a psychiatrist about my meth addiction, but I was always skirting around this unspoken thing that I couldn't talk about that was really, really bad, but I didn't want to talk about it for fear of what was going to happen. And my psychiatrist actually said to me, he's like, I wish you would stop punishing yourself for stuff that happened when you were a teenager. And I had no idea what the hell he was talking about, (laughs) but it didn't fit with what I was going through at the time. But of course, in all fairness, I wasn't giving him the full honest truth about what I was going through anyways. So all of that was in my mind as I was, went back to working in, in where I was working overseas and, um, to be called down and have an agent waiting for me. Um, it's extremely intimidating when those credentials are put in your face and, um, and at the time, I had also, um, been, uh, fascinated with this, with this show called Lie to Me. And, and it was talked, to, and it, it, this theme was about tells and, and how people are dishonest in their, in their physical uh, appearance. And I remember <laughs> having the audacity and the ego to think that I could reenact these acting moments because if the FBI is there, there's only one reason why they're there. I knew that's why they were there. And, but yet they talked to me about something completely different. And then they blindsided me with my logins for my computer and, and pictures and stuff like that of myself at the same date, time, and stamp as the uh downloading of the uh illegal content. And, um, so during this escape plan, um... This happened, and it sucked the breath out of my life. And at the same time, I have to be honest with you, too. It was such a relief. I felt like even in that first night in that first cell, it 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 wasn't as bad just because I was segregated from the population, and I didn't know this at the time. It's because I was a federal inmate. And, um, the feds don't trust anybody else to do their work for them. So if you're a fed inmate, you're kept in, in, in segregation. And, and I was pre trial, so innocent until proven guilty. I was under protective custody. So, so that first night, I actually, um, had a rocky sleep. But at the same time, there was just a, a part of me that was like, it's, it's, it's all out in the open now. It has been, ripped out of my closet all of these skeletons for the entire world to see it's done and and for anybody that's ever gone through a moment like that before um there there is a moment where when it's all said and done you're just like god i'm so glad that that happened that really like was so i'm so glad someone had the strength other than me to pull it out and bring it out into the open after that first arrest, problems did follow at the very beginning. Um, I thought that I would be segregated just because that's how it would be. And and um, when I got taken the next day to the federal holding facility, um, during the check-in process, all of the cops there um, were looking at what I was being booked for, and all of the comments started, oh, good luck on the floor, they're not going to like you, you better seg up. Um, they would... They would um, point at my picture and then go and walk off and talk amongst themselves, the cops and stuff like that. Um, for somebody who, uh, <laughs> who didn't at the time recognize my OCD behavior, um, that, was, that was problematic for me um, to begin obsessing over what could possibly happen. And as somebody who was a tactician in avoiding my abusive father, I started planning out all every, every single scenario I could think of that was going to happen, what can I do to avoid, and um, also recognizing that these could possibly be fear tactics, you know. But um, it turned out to be true. Um, I did elect to go into segregation. The cops were trying to push me to go into, um, into uh, general population. And I just... I just didn't trust him. I didn't trust him after what I saw. And um, even in segregation, they ended up putting a gang member in my cell at one point and I was attacked one time. And um, so during that whole federal holding time, while I'm coming to grips with, with what I did, I'm, I'm also at the same time, like bargaining with myself almost, almost like this. It's like, okay, well it can't be, it can't be that bad. I mean, you didn't, I mean, you're not, you know, I said this to myself, you're not a child molester. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. You just looked at some stuff. I mean, I started going through this whole thing in my head to calm myself down. At the same time, every single time I hear a set of keys, I think someone's coming to my door to unlock it, to let the masses in, to stab me and kill me. Every time the door's open for chow, I think something's going to be thrown in or I'm going to be hurt. And I was literally plucking the hairs out of my chin as, as, a, as a form of... um self-harm, to, to soothe myself. And and to this day, all those hairs that I plucked out at that time, I hadn't had any gray hair, but all those hairs um, grew back white. I'd never been so stressed out and so scared in my life. The panic um, that I was experiencing was not just from the, the 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 fear of being hurt, but also like the secret's out. Like this deep, terrible, dark secret is out. And then, like I shared before, the relief because the secret's out. The deep, dark, terrible secret's finally out. You know, I still didn't think that what I did was all that wrong. It was, you know, it was, like I said before, just comparable to to downloading songs. And and that's basically where my mindset was at. At the time of being arrested and before my journey through the court system, that's where my brain was and that's, that's as far of knowledge... Of, of this whole process that I had at the time.
1: So before we talk about what sentencing was like and, and um, you know, what you realized at the time of sentencing, could you talk a little bit about what you now understand about uh, the nature of the harm that you did cause by viewing child pornography?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I have, I have since learned a lot Um, This is, this is what I have learned is um, actually me being here talking with you today is a testament to what I learned. Um, I'm going to start off by stating, I know who I am. I know who I'm not. I have come to learn um, about my past and I've come to learn why my brain created a system that was okay with doing what I did. And. A lot of those thinking errors I have come to learn are all over the planet. They're some of the same thinking errors people, you know, exhibit when they're getting pulled over for a ticket. And so, but to point, first what I learned is that I stopped saying this was a victimless crime um, because it is not. There is absolutely several thousands and millions of victims. And I, by viewing those sex abuse images, because in treatment, we don't call it child pornography. And pornography implies that it's for, what is it called, pecuniary gain, you know, for financial or for um, a whole bunch of reasons. But we, we stay away from that phrase. We, we, we like to refer to it as it is because it's a reminder of us of where we've come from and it, and it keeps us from doing it again. And these are images that have been created that will, with the internet, probably go on a very long time, if not forever. And they are evidence of child sexual abuse. And I witnessed that. And there's a whole bunch of different levels in my case as far as why I viewed it and, and, and what I was viewing it for, specifically before my sentencing um, I did have a evaluation done because we wanted to present it to the court. And um, it did come back with a preliminary diagnosis of he- hebephilia. And um, it was very good for us to hear that. And it's just, at the time, of course, and even now, I'm not going to go out on a corner street and, and yell that out. But in in the realm of the courts, this is a very important differentiation. And it helped out with the sentencing that that I was relating these images to my own experience. I have come to learn that I myself am a sex abuse victim, even though I was promiscuous in my teenage years. I, as a minor, do not have the... uh, I can't make those decisions on my own. And I have protections afforded to me because of my lack of mental or emotional health and growth and that I was victimized and it's it's hard for me to rectify with that statement however after I've been shown about my own victimizing of 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 those uh victims in those images and those videos I've come to learn that that I am associated that way most importantly what I've learned is the impact that my choices have had, not just on me and the victims, but also my family, um, my loved ones, um, my friends, people that support me. I had a decorated career in show business, um, was was well known in my community, and that that reputation was instantly destroyed because of this. And at the time, that was something that was important to me. What I learned after being arrested was the media camping out on my mom's front lawn for a few days, the embarrassment that that caused her. The viewing of these images is is making the crime happen all over again. That these victims receive notifications every time someone is arrested and they have these videos inside their their evidence and their discovery, the victims are notified. So for the rest of her life or the rest of his life, he's getting notifications of people that are viewing <laughs> this horrific event that happened to them for sexual pleasure or for curiosity or, or whatever. I, to, when I did the victim impact section of my treatment, it really just blew my top off to really just sit down and 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 realize how long this abuse goes, that this one event that was captured on this date at such time that's you know 10 minutes long or however it is, it's forever and and there are are victims out there that are unable to work or go to school or don't feel safe because of the violation that has happened to them. This is the stuff that I've learned. I've learned how just one single click for me caused so much harm and, and pain to so many victims that's That's really what I truly understand, and that alone is is what is part of what has has brought me to to a realm of, of empathy and at the same time forgiveness for myself, just to be able to to process and and continue forward um, through all of this. And then in, in in conclusion of this is recognizing the fact that what if my abuse had been memorialized in a video or a picture and how would I feel about what had happened to me that night? I can still, even right now, I can still smell the vanilla candle. I can still, you know, picture all the images that were in my mind of that event and what had happened to me at that time. What if somebody else had that and and kept it and was able to pass it around across the world without my consent and without me even having any any control? It would just be, be mortifying. The lack of empathy through a mouse and a mouse click exists. And if you think I'm wrong, anybody who has watched car crashes for fun or watched beheadings for fun or anything like that, you have watched a crime. You have watched something terrible and violent happen to somebody that was outside of their control. And whether you're laughing or just being a voyeur, you are profiting from that imagery with, you know from all different perspectives. And it's that, it's that revelation that really drove it home for me. And it, and it really is interesting that it takes a while to get to that point where it feels like in treatment, God, if you would have led with victim empathy, I would have got it a long time ago, but I can't get there yet. <laughs> you have to go through the processes of realizing what it is that you did in the first place. And then you can understand and be open and receptive to, to victim empathy. Cause I find sometimes it can be so uncomfortable for people. They won't engage with it. They're not ready. They're not ready to hear that because the shame is so strong and, and, and 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 that that shame emotion is, is is can be crippling for some, especially considering that a lot of offenders are antisocial, don't have very good relations with others, or don't relate well with others sometimes, and um, so they're they're just stuck with their own self talk, and they're their own worst enemy sometimes. And and for me, there was a time where it can be really tough going to group um, and talking because uh, it's it's reopening. That um, chapter in my life that I'm trying so hard to just push away. And for the longest time, I was doing that, trying to just push away. Don't want to talk about it. Nobody look at it. Nobody look at it. And now, because I know who I am and because I know who I'm not, um, I'm able to, to hold on to the truth and foundation of my story and be okay with everybody else's interpretation of it. Because I know what I am and I know what I'm not.
0: So So you talked a little bit about your experience of being arrested and then being held pre-trial. But could you talk a little bit about what happened when you were sentenced and you realized the amount of time that you were facing?
2: Absolutely. Um, any crime involving the Internet is, um, is considered a federal crime. Because it falls under the guises of international commerce. And um, the judicial system for the federal judicial system has a sentencing scheme for their offenses. And um, prior to you being sentenced, um, federal inmates are going to get a pre-sentence investigation. And this PSI is done by a probation officer. And they are looking into the circumstances of your case, your history, um, relations with, with family and friends, etc. And then looking at the discovery of the case. And then they make a recommendation to the court as to what they feel the most appropriate sentence would be for the crime committed. For myself, I was arrested on two charges. First one being possession of child pornography. The second one was receipt and distribution child pornography um, because I was using here's what it's called because I was using a peer to peer sharing program um, which is which is what LimeWire is it was I what had happened is that it, it leaves my computer open for anybody to be able to download files off of it it's, it's part of the file sharing program well when you do that I, I am not only receiving illicit material But by holding it onto my computer, I'm possessing it. And then by leaving it open for other people to download it, I am leaving it open for distributing it. Okay. Now, I'm defining these specific things because um, there's there's quite a disparity between the sentencing of them. Possession for federal crime um, carries a five-year sentence. And the receipt and distribution carries a sentence of five to 20 years. And when I went to court, the prosecution had decided to drop the possession charge and only stick with the receipt and distribution, giving the sentencing scheme between five and, and uh, 20 years. Um, you might have to double check the facts, but I'm pretty sure the possession charge carries a maximum of five years. And so by, by dropping that one and opening the door for the other one, it gives the court the flexibility to schedule based on the severity of the crime. Now, when I got my pre-sentence investigation back um, from probation, we thought first-time offender, um, in his 30s, has been working full-time, what is considered a contactless crime. They don't call it a victimless crime. They call it a contactless crime uh, or non-contact offense. And uh, all those factors, um, we felt, me and my lawyer, were going to be favorable for us and that we'd get on the lower spectrum. Probation officer came back with a recommendation of the maximum of 20 years. And when I first heard that, it really lit a fire inside of me that was very, that had a um, mixed response or mixed reception with my family. Um, When I started talking to my brother and my sister about this, we, we weren't on amazing speaking terms. But I had remembered sending a letter out to my sister and my brother about, you know, this is what they're trying to give me, etc. And with some of the words I was saying, it was in response to me defending the sentencing recommendation. But I was using a lot of talk that made it sound like I was trying to minimize what I did. Or trying to shirk responsibility, and uh, it wasn't until after it wasn't until after I got released that I was able to fix that, <laughs> and it had to be done uh, in person. But so this fire that sparked inside of me was really trying to understand why things are sentenced the way they're sentenced, and I started going to the law library and started researching everybody that had the same charge as mine, and what I found was a little alarming there was a huge disparity in sentencing that was happening with regards to this crime and with the feds they have the actual crime which is you know receipt and distribution of of child pornography and um that has a magic number that that that's attached to it i believe it's 18 or 13 and then from there you can add on points if there are factors in your case that would cause it to to uh, to allow enhancements, for example, a different crime, if I robbed you just by using my muscle or brawn, that would be one crime. But if I pointed a knife at you, that would be another enhancement. If I pointed a gun at you, it would be an additional one if I fired the trigger. If a bullet hit somebody. All of these things are enhancements. So when it comes to enhancements for these type of crimes, there are enhancements for use of a computer for having more than um, a certain amount of images for having images under the age of 12 years old. And all of these enhancements were originally meant to separate the worst, of the, worst case offender with the run-of-a-mill offender, is what, what it said in the law library. And for me, I found that I committed all of those enhancements with my first click of the mouse. My first time offending, I got all of these enhancements that made me seem on paper to the court as a worst case offender. And there is a difference. There is a difference between hands-on offenders and contactless or non-contact offenders. There is a difference between protection in prison. There is a difference between how the gangs treat you in prison. Whether people agree right now with what the knowledge they have now, whether or not this, there is a difference in the eyes of courts, sentencing, um, prison groups, And sometimes in treatment as well, there, there is a difference. Um, however, it is still a victim based crime. Um, so what I was going on is just the, the angle within the realm of the court as separating myself from a worst case offender. I did not press record on this video. I did not put this video on the internet. I was not presently there when this crime happened. I viewed this crime after the fact by way of a video on the internet and that and those facts and what I wrote in my allocution to the court where I fought for myself and it was the only time that I would really be able to have a statement to the court. I did a research and found 45 cases that had the exact same crime as mine. And for me, I was arrested with 325 pictures And 75 videos and I found offenders with tens of thousands of videos and pictures that only got sentenced to five years I found a couple of contact offenders who were actually one was running a daycare another one was a stepchild um, was a contact offense they got sentenced to five years I found people who had less pictures than I did that got 20 years so there was just a big back and forth based off the different areas of the country, of judges sentencing in schemes that were not consistent. And what the point I was making was that that I, this was my first time, that, that I have the capacity to not reoffend. That's why we did those, um, what is it called, those evaluations before sentencing. I mean, we were really trying to provide to the court that I was not what the what the black and white papers were saying, that we were trying to humanize the case a little bit. We uh, requested five years, which was the minimum. The government, we were able to convince them to go down to a 12-year recommendation, and the judge chose right in the middle at eight years. And had it been the first day that I was fighting this, if they would have come and told me on the first day, hey, you are going to get eight years for this, you might as well have told me I would have died. I mean, I, it would have been to me such a, such a huge blow. Like, oh my God, eight years, this is the end of the world. After spending three years in county fighting this and, and doing the research and everything, after getting eight years, I thought it was a blessing. I was so thankful for the court to give me what, what they felt I honestly and truly and justly deserved and i was and i had always even when the fbi uh, was there interrogating me i told them i'm not going to run from you guys i'm not going to lie for you guys i'm not going to do anything the the gig is up it's done like i'm i'm of of enough experience to understand that if you're standing here talking to me it's done and and it's better for me that i stand on principle and honesty and that's the only thing that's going to save me and it was that kind of, that theme that was really driving me. Look, Amato, you messed up. You deserve to go to prison. And, and I was okay with that. I absolutely felt that. I said that during my pre-sentence investigation. I said it to the court. I deserve to go to prison, Your Honor. I absolutely believe that. I just don't think that I deserve to go to prison for 20 years. You know, and um, and I still say it to this day. I've said it in in a couple of motivational speeches to to other people. Um, I'm glad I went to prison with my narcissism and and my um, my issues that that I would uh, use other people for for my own personal um, licking of my wounds. You know, across the years, there was nothing that was going to stop me. I thought that I could cure my own drug addiction. I thought I could cure my own sex addiction by leaving the country and going back to work and in, in my industry. It really, really took it really took my higher power ripping me out of society and putting me on a timeout to really, really gain some clarity about myself. And so I still to this day tell people that that I'm that I trust with my story that I deserve to go and I serve the time that I did and I did it um well. And I did it with a with a perfect record. Um, I programmed hard. I learned. I took the time to learn and took the time to heal the relationships that were important to me. That's what I did with my time. Didn't play poker. Didn't go on the rec yard. Didn't go into the weight pile. Didn't Didn't join a gang. Nothing. I turned inward and selfishly took care of myself because I knew when I got out of prison that I was going to have even a harder time than I did before. And I think it did me really good to be able to work on myself while I was inside.
1: Thank you for such an honest response to that. Um, I mean, your whole testimony today has been just pure honesty and I'm, thank you.
2: If, if it's ever a lesson for anybody else, even if it's related to something that's not related to this subject, This is a story of overcoming. And it's overcoming choices, bad choices that I made that caused a lot of ripple effects in in my life and in their lives. And the only way to come back from something like that is honesty. And actually, more to point, the only way to really work on your own personal or my own personal narcissism is complete transparency. Everyone in my support network knows what it feels like when I'm lying. They know what it feels like when I'm trying to pull away and, and isolate myself. They know all those red flags. And I have several people in my life that have a key to my house because I told them, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. If you can't reach me. And if you think something's going on, you come into my house. This is what it takes for me. And, um, and by doing that, I'm also showing and proving to my loved ones as well that I am accountable because I used to create this system that just prevented me from being accountable. I was a slick talker. I was a manipulator. And, and so it's hard to come back from that without just pulling aside the, uh, the curtain in Oz and showing all the smoke and mirrors because that's really all it was.
1: So society doesn't really view people who have viewed child sexual exploitation material in a positive light. What do you wish society knew about you? The
2: answer, the forefront answer right now is is currently what I'm dealing with in treatment as it relates to my anger and expression of my anger or rage. Um, and that is uh, I, I am hurting and I hurt a lot. Even, even as, as much as I come on here and show my strength and in, in being able to talk to the story, I believe it's the idea that someone's talking with me or about me that, that helps cushion that because that, that kind of feeds some of, of my personality, you know, at the same time sitting here, you know, a little misty eyed because I feel exposed. I feel vulnerable and it's it's really hard. This is a very tough question. Um, what do I wish society knew about me? I wish society knew that this started with me being a victim. That I come from an environment where... ...where the behavior that was fostered in me was self-reliance... That I wasn't given much supervision because I was an a natural leader in my family. It's something that that i've that's big on my resume is leadership um growing up in boy scouts um but at the end of the day what what I've come to learn uh, about myself is that um and I think this can speak for other people who have hurt too um Being in show business helped. Being able to put on a show that I'm okay and that I have it all together and that I'm successful um, hides really what's going on on the inside. I um, didn't feel loved for a long time. Um, Was confused at what love actually was. And I, I begged my mom to pay off a drug dealer before I went back to work on the industry before I got arrested. And um, she did, and um, I was going to pay her back with that first paycheck um uh, that I got, and when I got that first paycheck after being in hiding and and poor and practically homeless and drug addicted, to going back to a lavish career with a you know three thousand dollar a month payroll, um, that temptation was too big. And I um, decided just to keep the money for myself. So my mom didn't hear from me for almost two years. I ignored her emails, ignored her phone calls. And then I get arrested. And the first thing she hears about me is blasted on the front page of the newspapers. And then I call her. And it was my first phone call. And I had already been arrested for, for almost a week. And it was my first phone call. And I called her. And she answered the phone. And she heard the message that this is a phone call from a federal inmate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I I told her, I said, if I wrote a book, this is what I'm gonna say. You proved what love is to me when you when you press the number five. When you pressed the number five and took my call, after everything that I did to you, you still showed me that. You understood that what I was doing was not me, that I was under a hypnosis or under, you know, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. So I do feel that that drug use introduced um, elements in my life that I continue to struggle with. Um, that temptation, um, the enemy knows uh, who I am. They know that I was on their team for a while. And now that I'm not, they're really after me now. And I still get those cravings. And these are drug cravings. Um, And I've been able to be strong through that. But what I wish society knew about me was that I made a terrible, terrible choice. And I stood on the consequences of those choices. And I did what was asked and expected of me. And I'm continuing to do that. And at the same time, I have a drive in me. To continue working in this area, even if it's in the peripheral, to continue helping other people with this. I wish so many people knew how easy it was to find this material online and how much it's all being watched. And not just because I want people to get away with crime. That's not it at all. I just want it to stop. I just don't feel that there's any need for this type of material to be floating out there. After I was able to attach this this crime to my own personal abuse, it, it really was able to I was really able to see um how terrible this actually is. Uh, and and the more and more I keep talking, I I I don't know what I wish society knew about me and that's probably the most honest question because I've gotten the full spectrum from society. I have gotten the full spectrum. Hate and disgust and understanding and sometimes the people that have understanding I can even see them exhibiting thinking errors in their own understanding. There there's just a lot of ignorance out there about this. And And I don't say that in a bad way. It's just people don't know. A lot of people don't know um, about this or about this crime or how easy it is. Um, I do know that there are a lot of people who are very quick to be the type that will say, I don't care, lock away the key. I don't care about those people. And... I hope someone cares because I am very sorry for what I did and I don't deserve to be in prison forever. And I don't deserve to be in even the realm that I'm in now, but I'm willing to accept the consequences of my actions and I'm willing to go through what I need to go through. But something that I thought about even before coming on here is I just had a big weekend in, in, on the coast in California with this beautiful storm. And it was just gorgeous. And there were parts of me that was just like, I don't even want to get pulled over because I don't want to have to tell the cop I'm a 290 registrant and I don't want to have to dig into all my stuff while I'm enjoying some time with my husband. You know, I just, I feel sometimes that because of this crime, I'm not allowed to have fun. I'm not allowed to smile or laugh that I should continue in perpetuity In this punishment phase for the rest of my life, I think probably that's what I wish society knew is that it shouldn't be that way. It should be that I serve the time that the government said that I should serve and that that government is supported by the people and that after that time is done, that with continued supervision and treatment, which is part of my court order as well. That I'm showing that I can be trusted again and that I wish that society as a whole would match what my P.O. thinks about me. My P.O. came in three days ago and sat on my couch and told me um, how far I've come along and how proud he was of me. <laughs> and <laughs> that was a big, that was a big deal. And. I just wish society had the same viewpoint that they could see the work that I was doing, um, that they could see the progress that I was making and that society could trust me again.
0: So I think that really does tie into some of the questions that we had about challenges that you face today. Right. So we know that people that are convicted of, um, acts of sexual harm are sort of held to a different set of rules so to speak upon release right that as you were saying that their punishment continues um, after being released from incarceration so there was is there any specifics that have been particularly challenging for you like finding a job or housing things like that
2: I think it goes along with some of what you have shared before in in previous episodes too is that um that there is um a lot of opinions are formed in this sanctum in this in this private area of of people forming you know viewing all of the all of the stories or listening to the podcast or seeing the material and 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 reading the headlines that they come to their own um, opinions about this or what they think um, should be done about it. And I think the research, like you have sh- showed before, shows that the punishment versus rehabilitation is not working. And um, the I <laughs> here's here's a, a, for me a goosebump story, but that that eight year sentence. Had I been sentenced to five years, I would have been released in a California that was still precluding people from living near parks. I would have had a hard time finding a place to live. And one of the things that we were talking about while inside was um, the last thing you want is to have a registered sex offender with no address. I mean, what you want is you want to know where people are. You want to know that they're that they're that they're. That they are where they say they're going to be, that they're doing what they're saying that they're supposed to be doing, and that accountability is important. The recidivism rate for for uh, sex offenders and even even sex offenders that are are um, that are offenders with with the the child abuse images um, is extremely low. And and for me, I mean, even that after that first attack within the first week of me being um with me being arrested i had i had learned so much to know i will never do this again i will never ever i will you know and um it it has been challenging sometimes to have candid and open conversations about this subject it it produces very intense emotions on both sides And I, I soapboxed a little bit by, by putting in there, you know, I served my time. I did my time. I should have a clean slate. That has been said, um, sometimes in, in the heat of the moment with someone who was, who was trying to come for me about it. Um, and some of the biggest challenges I faced after getting out was, was the work. Um, and it really depends sometimes on, on the actual probation officer you have, but we are required to disclose our crime to our employers. And, um, sometimes it is allowed that we can say that we are, uh, we are under probation for a federal computer crime. And because the goal with probation isn't so much supervision, it's also almost uh, on par with, um, Social work. There, there is a there is a handover process between incarceration and being released into public. The probation officer has a job to protect the public, but also to assist rehabilitating the offender so that they can be released back into the public. And right now, being under supervision, um, I am required to disclose. But my probation officer also understands the importance in treatment of having a pro-social life. And part of that pro-social life is having friends, having relationships, and having a job and having those interactions on a daily basis. Now, the job that I'm currently in now has, um, has been very rewarding and has been exactly the type of um, uh, corporation I've been trying to work for is one that looks at you and says, okay, you did this, but who are you now? and what are you going to do now and we're going to try you out and see how you do now and that my merit now has has allowed me to shine and has given me this this resolve and this confidence to be like you know what i can get through this i am going to get through this but most important i think the biggest lesson for me is that i cannot get through this alone there is no way i can do this alone I don't even want to do it alone, and um, so uh, the job thing. I did go through a few jobs when I came out. It is very, it is very disappointing to have uh, a, a boss who praised you and and lifted me up and and told me how good of a job I was doing and how important I was to his 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 business. And, um, and the uh, effect that I've been able to have on the morale of, of, of their crew to have them turn in a moment after finding out my criminal history and having that completely change. It, it is so discouraging to have that one thing in your past be such a heavy weight on the scale that it just, it just completely tosses out all the accolades and, and merits that, that I had, um that I had worked up ever since being released. And it is, it is tough. It was tough for me to come to terms with that, to look at somebody who I considered an intellectual equal or, uh, or um, somebody who was a supervisor that I looked up to change like that with the, with the knowledge and, and, and training and treatment that I've received to just look at that and have to accept it. (laughs) One, which is difficult but two, it just—it's just disappointing because I wish that that person was at a different point in their life to be able to recognize that there there's a separation between these two things. That yes, it's important to have the knowledge of that past and where I came from, and and to look at it when I need to, so I don't go back to it. That I never forget um, because of all the people that are involved with the commission of my crime, including the victims. That I never forget the impact, but at the same time, there's a part of me, um, and there's a part of anybody who's ever had any dirt in their closet whatsoever, um, that you just want to move away from that and 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 correct and grow.
1: So as we come to the end of our time together, uh, Nicholas, I'm wondering if you can uh, share any last bits of wisdom or. Anything else that you would want people listening to your story to know?
2: I think sex addiction is not treated as seriously as it should be. I think uh, porn addiction is still a little glamorized, and I have seen in 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 what it does for me <clears throat> what treatment does for me I mean I'm sorry I've seen the impact of that addiction I've seen the damage it does to relationships and it if there are people out there who watch pornography privately and if anybody has ever interrupted that viewing and you secretly hide it away real quick the one thing that I learned and I think this is a popular saying um is that you're only as sick as your secrets. And I find that there are a lot of people with secrets. And I wish... One of the biggest struggles that I've gone through in treatment is rectifying the fact that the rest of the world is not in treatment, so I can't hold them accountable to the same things I have to hold myself accountable to. (laughs) And that is extremely frustrating for someone who likes to win arguments sometimes. (laughs) But I would like to say that um, it's real and, and that, that sex addiction and that porn addiction, if you want to call it a gateway or, or, or whatnot, that it, it progresses so far that you become numb to what you're viewing and nothing is exciting anymore. So you start escalating and viewing things that you normally wouldn't view. And I think it's happening a lot more often in families, but they're not talking about it. And they're not catching it early on, or they're agreeing that oh, this is just part of growing up. You know, the boy with his his porn magazines, or or et cetera, or the girl sending pictures of her bra and her breasts to her boyfriend while in high school. I just think that a lot of this stuff happens and and is is kind of implanted early on during sexual discovery. Like for me, it was and during that discovery phase if somebody challenges that it's almost a challenge to my own sexuality it's a challenge to my identity it's hard to to separate that and look at it objectively and go yeah i do have a problem and 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 yeah i do confuse sex or or i or, you know i used to it took me a long time to come to grips with that idea and to also be in a relationship where it's like um yeah it's pretty normal to not have sex for a while and it's okay to not be emotional about it. And it's okay to be strong and, and have an intimate and sensual relationship with someone without forcing yourself to have sex every day because you think that's what you're supposed to do. For me, um, the identity of sexuality and, and, and love was something that, that guided my decisions for a long time and i just i have a feeling that i'm not the only one that has experienced that and for me it was the starting ground of addictive and and uh, addiction based behavior and and it 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 was that alone that fed into the also um the uh compulsive drug use as well and i just think that um that it's bigger than a lot of people give credit for and uh, i hope that um some of what i went through um leading up to my crime i would just hate for someone to fall into the same the same exact spiral that that i did and we see people getting arrested all the time it's happening over and over and over again and i i do think that with 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 what you two are doing And with people talking about it, with people understanding that there is a Sexaholics Anonymous, that there's ways to go to these groups, even over the phone now, that you can just sit and listen and see if anything speaks to you. But I do think that a lot of this, um, a lot of these sexual issues are ruining relationships or making people think that the toxic relationships that they're in are good.
1: Well, thank you so much,
2: yeah it's an absolute pleasure it's it's um I do this on a weekly basis speaking about you know uh, in treatment and um this is this is another form I um you came highly recommended and your bedside manner is 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 perfect um I feel very comfortable and safe sharing the story and I think many other people who have come and talked to you before probably feel the same way it's it's very good what you two are doing we
0: appreciate that, and you having the courage to come on and share with us. And You, know, you have a really important story to share, and we're glad that you're here to do Thank that. Thank you for listening okay. to Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast, a part of Article 3 Podcasting Network. Beyond Fear, the Sex Crimes Podcast is written and hosted by Alexa Sardina and Alyssa Ackerman. All episodes are produced and edited by Christopher Antico. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and answer any questions that you might have about the topics we've covered or any questions you have about us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. Remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for blog posts, resources, readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.